This is RDQI. In this episode, we try and wrap our heads around how memory is changing. We've all struggled to remember something. Like, what was that one actor's name from that movie 10 years ago? Or what is my password to this account? The curious thing is people usually work together to store memories. Can't remember that actor? Well, call your movie buff friend. Can't remember your password? Well, get a password manager or check with your spouse who wrote it down. But what happens when we don't use either and just store memories on the internet? This episode of RDQI is brought to you by Gaff and Pizza. You want to come in and burn your face up? Well, we got spicy meatballs and not to mention the fire unique sandwich. Yes, that's right, the fire unique. So hot, it's going to burn your face off. Cafe Pita, located at Raymond and Washington Drive. Hey, Ryan, you just mentioned a word to me before we started recording. Biomemory. What is biomemory? Yeah, yeah. Because I was too embarrassed to admit that I didn't know it a few minutes ago. (laughs) Well, it's, I mean, I don't know if it's a generally accepted term, um, but what I was alluding to is all humans have a biological memory system. We call it our brain, right? So it's composition of neurons, and many, many other things that combine to form this complex neural network, um, the scale of which is huge. I mean, like 100 trillion synapses, I believe, or 100 trillion, 100 trillion neurons. Uh, off the top of my head, I can't remember which one is which, but it's immensely complicated. And the way that our brain works uh, is it's not really well understood. I mean, we're definitely in, a, I think, a period where we're starting to map out the brain, kind of like, you know how like when DNA was mapped for the first time, that was like such a big deal. Um, that's, as far as I can tell, the leading edge in neuroscience is trying to do a similar thing or follow a similar process with how the brain actually behaves. And, and that it, so biomemory popped up to me because as you know, I've been getting more into, um, basically computers and using computers for different facets of business and actually programming them, which is something I haven't really done before. Um, and I started in a very arcane language, the language C, which if anyone's listening as a programmer, you, you will probably shudder and be like, oh, that's such a abrasive and difficult language to work with. One of the reasons that it is, is in that language, you have to allocate memory in the computer and you have to be very careful how you do it. And if you don't, if you get it wrong, the memory leaks and your program is going to suffer and your the user is going to hate you for designing it because it doesn't work well. So then it got me thinking, like, okay, so we have memory in computers, and we have memory in human brains. And then I was doing some digging as, you know, into kind of the uh, sociocultural realm of science. Well, you know, the soft science there. And there was some really interesting data coming out since about 2010, when, the, when you know, really in truth, the internet, um, I think, really took on a new level of acceptance across the world in about, you know, between 2000 and 2010. There's a lot mm-hmm. of development. And so biomemory, I think, is important to distinguish from digital mem- memory. Um, even though they function, as far as I can tell, they function in somewhat similar ways. You know, like humans design computers, so they're, they're kind of mapped after how humans would think, right? But there's some, there's some pretty interesting and almost, I would say, some people would say scary research out there coming about like how our brains are changing because we're reallocating our memories in different ways. Does that make sense? 
It it does. I I actually so I just jotted down um, because my memory is not great tonight because I've had a long day. So I'm taking some notes. Um, but when I think of the difference between memory of a computer and memory of the human brain, I just wrote down storage versus dynamic storage or malleable storage. So mm-hmm. when you when you re- encode or record an event in a computer. It's it's static, right? Like you record it because you don't mm. want to forget it. Um, it's well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Well, so, so this is the important distinction, though. So random access memory, we all know that as RAM, that's highly mm-hmm. volatile memory, and we it's volatile Pretty for good a purpose. Album too. Yeah, oh, it's a great album. Uh, we listened to that album over my bachelor party night. That was a good time. We're not going to we? talk about that though. I don't think that's I. So okay, hang on. This is interesting because. I don't remember that. What? I, I also am kind of remembering that that album did not come, it came out after your bachelor party. All right. Oh, so, no, so listeners, not... there's going to be an edit moment here. I'll be forthright with you. We're going to look up when that album came out. No, you know what? Because after your bachelor party, we took the blue line home, which means I would have been in Logan Square, which means. Because I was listening to that album in Lincoln Park. So, yes, the album would have been out before. Oh, and Dave, that is so brilliant that you brought this up, actually. Because you just went through a a memory process that's interesting. Uh, I can't remember the name of the term. But basically, the way you just remembered that is a very unique form of memory where you you remember the process and the time around you. So, like, a classic way to ask this question is, um, Dave, the house that you lived at three houses ago... Which side of the door was the doorknob on? Now, obviously, I'm not going to ask you to actually answer it on air, but typically the process for people to answer that question is to visualize themselves walking up to their house, to like try and place themselves in a memory that isn't directly tied to the doorknob, but can help facilitate the process and access those memories. Yep. As opposed to just like... That's how I imagined it. Right. And as opposed to just rote knowing like, oh yeah, well, I remember that this album came out on this date and therefore your bachelor party was on this date. So of course we did. You know, most people don't store memory that way. Yeah. I mean, I I immediately thought of, I'm, I'm just picturing in my mind walking up to the door. I'm not remembering a specific memory of walking up to the door. I'm just, you know, kind of recreating that world in my mind. Exactly. And that's a... I mean, it's a really useful way to remember things. It's, it's kind of like how uh, mnemonic devices work, you know? Um, it would be really hard to remember the ABCs, but we teach people to learn the ABCs by teaching them to sing a song because humans are really good at remembering uh, music. I mean, there's a number of studies or instances, rather, where stroke patients will lose the ability to talk but retain the ability to sing. So they're two different centers of the brain, essentially. That's an oversimplification, of course. But in general, that's kind of what's going on there. Well, so so let me let me dig into this storage versus dynamic storage, because this is just something I'm I'm coming up with, but you obviously you you know more about the science than I do. So you know, if this is nothing, then it's nothing. Sure. Um but but if you if you store an event in a computer, um you know, you're trying to record something as a as a fact, essentially. And they're really, you know, I, I don't I don't want to get too technical. I'm sure there might be exceptions, but like the the point of me entering, you know, my my checking balance in my computer is like it will always be there. Mm-hmm. Um and it's not gonna change. Human memory is 
it's very dynamic. I mean, number one, there's so many instances of, you know, selective memory and adaptive memory mm-hmm. um, over the course of your life. Um, you know, uh, th- there have been, I have a number of stories, you know, after after 33 years of, ooh, shoot, I don't know why I wouldn't want to tell my age, but <laughs> after three decades um, <laughs> on this earth, you know, I've, I've had enough shared memories with people. Um, and, and I've, I'm sure you've, you've had this experience too, you know, talking about memories with somebody and you, you have two different memories. Well, how does that, how does that work? Well, memory is adaptable. Memory also is encoded via the senses, mm-hmm. some sort of sense. Mm-hmm. I'm making that up. No, it but is. I think that's true. Uh, as Whereas f- that's, sorry, as far as we know, yes. And it's actually been indicated that it's strongly tied to emotion, that actually your emotional process um, what you know, uh, what Freud might have called, or some other psychologists would have called the subconscious. That's actually the primary driver of you encoding memories in your brain. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, like if you know, like if you and I were sharing a memory, if I was having a bad day and it was a bad experience, there's a lot of research indicating that just my emotional state is going to change how I see that event. Even though if you showed up, you're like. You know, I just had a great day at work. I just asked that person out. We're going to have dinner later. I'm having a great day. You know, like it, your emotional state shapes how you see the world, which then also means it shapes how you remember the world. And a funny thing about memory that I didn't know until recently, like researching a little bit for this, is generally speaking, your memories are basically half made up. And I don't, I don't have the data and I don't have the examples to explain this. Um, so hopefully I can link it into the show notes. But I was watching a neuroscientist give a talk about the nature of memory. And she explains, she's like, and we know, so I just took her at her word. She said, we know that your memories, when you create them, 50% of them is actually probably the real event. And the rest of the 50% is just kind of made up by your brain. Which is kind of where the whole idea of we're living in a simulation comes from is that our brain is an active participant in forming memories it's not just passively receiving and encoding the information and that is pretty crazy it makes sense though and i think to, to kind of illustrate that's that's sort of a, a heady topic but if i think about i thought about this the other day because i also think that you know where we we record memories through senses that are sort of driven by emotions but i think that different people are predisposed to to different senses impacting them higher or lower than other senses um you know for myself for example I have a really terrible visual memory. Um, you know, I, whereas my dad, you know, if you, if you tell him, you know, Hey, do you remember when we went to, uh, you know, see the fireworks of the 4th of July, I'm going to remember the smell of, you know, the summer night and the grass. And I might remember the, you know, the music. Um, my dad will remember, you know, like the color of the shirt that he was wearing and that I was wearing and that, you know, he's, he's just has a much stronger visual memory than I do. Um, but when you were talking about that, that door, um, I have a, a, a fairly good touch, uh, memory. And so I remember, um, thinking about my apartment in Prague at one point, and this was probably three years after I lived there and where I don't have a, a great visual memory. It's, it's kind of fuzzy. It's like a kind of an out of focus picture, um, in my head. I can still go around in my mind in that apartment and and touch things like, you know, turn the stove on and I can, I know exactly what that knob Mm. feels like. 
Dude, that's, I mean, I don't have that. Uh, not really. I mean, some touch memory, sure, but nothing like that. I, that's crazy to me. And I think it's fascinating how people, I mean, we're just so intrinsically different and the way we process, because there's so much variability in the human, just from a biology standpoint, like forget psychology and all of its postulations, just biology, the diversity amongst humanity is pretty incredible. Um, you probably have a really great sound memory, I, w- yeah. I would imagine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I don't have a great sound memory in terms of pitch. I have a great memory in terms of rhythm and relative pitch. And I, this this hilarious thing happened to me. We were driving to um, Thanksgiving dinner with my with my family, and um, my dad had the radio on. And I could tell that it was Riders on the Storm by the Doors. And that's a song I know backwards and forwards. But it was really, really soft. So I could hear the rhythm, but I couldn't hear any of the melody. But I was playing the song along in my head. And then we slow and we were playing the the keyboard part. And again, I just I know all of that, you know, from from memory. Mm-hmm. But we slowed down and I, all of a sudden I could hear it and I realized I was at the perfect sp- I was at the right spot, but I was in a different key. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. Yeah. It was it was mind-blowing. Like how wow how wow. <laughs> yeah. Um but you probably have a better idea, a better, you know, internal sense of pitch, right? Uh so this is funny. I mean, me and my wife are a good way to s- explain this dichotomy cuz um as you know listeners or probably know, um I've, I'm a trained audio engineer. That's my first career. I still keep it as a side job cuz I love it. Um and yeah, I mean, I've spent hours, thousands of hours training my ears, literally. Um, but I've been training it in a different way than a musician would train their ears. So my wife, who is a also trained vocalist and guitarist, pianist, you name it, um, her pitch is incredible. I mean, she, her dad told me a story. He was like, yeah, we were driving one day, you know, little Jamie was, I think she was five, maybe six. And they were, li- they were listening, uh, they were listening to the Statler brothers, I believe. And she was harmonizing. Like she could pick out the three-part harmony and choose which part she was going to sing. There's no way I could do that. I can't even do that now, you know? But she was doing it almost <laughs> innately, you know? Yeah. Um, and so my sound memory is more tied to the tool set that I you know, trained myself on, which was hearing in a way kind of like the way a chef tastes food to try and put a a meal together. You know, a a chef might taste an ingredient and then can figure out how that could or could not fit into a dish. That's how I listen to sound. Um, And I mean, honestly, sound itself is just enjoyable to me. I think echolocation is fascinating. The people who, there are people who are blind who have learned to use echolocation to navigate the world. It's entirely possible. It's incredibly difficult, but it can be done. Um, And I I find that fascinating. And in particular, I find the realm of psychoacoustics amazing, which is the basically the process, which is how do humans hear what they hear? Like what's going on in the biology? What's going on in the brain? Um, Mm -hmm. And it's important for me to learn that because I would use these techniques to kind of manipulate the brain in a mix, basically, to hear something that isn't even necessarily there. Um, to use auditory illusions, if you will. Um, and everyone who's listening to pop music for the past 20 years, 
you've been you've been listening to the type of mixes that I would be trying to produce. Like it's not something niche or unique. Um, these are pretty well established principles. My auditory memory is much more focused on t- uh, timbre, uh, which is spelled T I M B R E, and for some reason we say timbre. Um, not Jeffrey Timbre. <laughs> nope, nope. Um, so I can identify those qualities. Um, I mean, I've I've told you this, and there's a game that my wife likes to play where she'll put on a song, a recording, basically. Um, it's important to dif- differentiate here. It is a recording, not she's playing a song. And the game is for me to guess what year the song was, re- the recording was released. And when I was, when I was like full on, when this was my full-time career, if I was off by more than two years, I was pretty disappointed with myself. Just because I knew the auditory history of recorded history, I could tell you like, okay, in the 60s, you know, most like stereo didn't really quite exist. And if it was there, it was hard right and hard left. There was no like panning between the two. So that's an easy auditory identifier to use in, in, a, in a historical shoot in an historical sense to identify like about the time. And then there's so many other cues you can listen to because that's what I was training myself to do. I mean, it's, it's nothing I- terribly unique. It was so infuriating that I could never stump you playing that game. <laughs> I, I, I went out of my way to find something. Like, there's no way. I remember uh, playing Steely Dan for you because, you know, they're, they're in the 70s, but they just, they were so studio oriented mm-hmm. that it just, it sounded much later. And I'm like, hey, there's no way he's going to get that. And you did. And you were like, not, not just the decade, the year. <laughs> And that yeah. made me so angry. I don't know why. It, well, I think it made me angry because I wish I could do that. <laughs> well, you didn't spend years of your life sitting in a basement all alone listening to music 18 hours a day. So, you well, know, you got to go through yeah. that first. <laughs> <laughs> and I mean, even if we if I were to play that game now, like when she tests me now, I'm not as good. My chops are not there anymore. Certainly not to that level. Um, and it's it's a level of practice that's required. And on top of it, honestly, after the year 2010 or so, that's, um, yeah, I would say 2010, it gets really hard to distinguish because the auditory, the way the mixing community went and the way the music community went was to use old school analog techniques in the digital realm to create vibey, vibrant mixes. So you would pull elements from 60s, uh, you know, 60s British rock, 70s disco, 80s country, and 90s grunge to compile a mix of a hip-hop song you know so you you pull from these different palettes and i think that's why i mean i think the recordings that are coming out in the past 10 years have been just unreal i I love it but that's a tangent and well you you should listeners should check out our number i think podcast number two manipulation and music oh yeah where we go kind of into detail um on psychoacoustics and a lot of stuff about you know the recording industry and the, you know, just what you do on a daily basis or what you did on a daily basis. And it's really interesting. You know, there's so much that goes into sound and music that if, unless you're in it professionally, you just have no idea, but it's really interesting. Yeah. And I'm sure that anyone listening, whatever your specialty is, like it is amazing, whatever you do, you know, even if you're an accountant or a finance nerd like Dave, like it's amazing what you do and what you just almost innately know. And that's actually an important point, Dave, is what we, you know, so the prefrontal cortex, right? The part of the brain, the executive function, um, it takes a lot of energy to use that part of the brain. 
Which is why if you sit down at a computer all day and you're really thinking hard and you're working hard and at the end of the day you're exhausted, it's because your body is depleting itself of glucose because the brain doesn't actually store glucose in its actual organ, even though it runs exclusively on glucose, right? Um, similarly, it's like if you, um, if you have a seizure, I mean, your body is basically just rapidly depleting your glucose stores and that's why you're so fatigued afterwards. So it's important for the human brain to be able to trans to be able to basically build habits into its memory where the executive function isn't required anymore. And in sports, we'd call this muscle memory, you know, basically is the same idea. And it's a really important function for memory because we don't want to have to think through everything. It would be exhausting. We wouldn't get anything done. We certainly wouldn't be recording a podcast because no one would have invented computers by now. It wouldn't be possible, right? But what's interesting about computers and how we interact with them is that we're actively offloading our memories. And then there's a lot of research actually indicating that fundamentally our brains are changing because of this process. And so one guy, the kind of the inspiration for this episode um, is a, a man by the name Dr. Daniel Wegner. Or, it's probably Wegner, he's American. Um, and he, uh, so he passed in 2013, but before that he released a really pretty astounding paper um, basically about the Google brain is what he was kind of dubbing it at the time. And he kind of starts out with, there's basically two memory, there's two, there's a couple ways to think about memory. And he generally broke it down into, uh, we can store internal memories. Like I know that two plus two is four. It's just rote memory, right? I've built that into my brain from, I don't even know what age, right? And I'm, everyone's done this. You have to, there are some things you just have to store in the rote style, right? But then there's also transactive memory. And this is where, like, you know, back in the day when, before there was the internet, you know, you'd have a friend who was like the movie buff, and you have a friend who was the music buff, and you'd have a friend who understood political science, you know? So if you had a question like, oh, what was that movie? What was that movie? If you couldn't actually remember it yourself, or if you didn't have a book or a magazine or anything that actually listed movies for some reason, you'd have to reach out to your movie buff friend to be like, hey, I can't remember this movie this one actor was in it. Can you help me? And your mem your friend would be able to transact with your memory and share that person's, their memory with you. And that's called the transactive memory process. That's as far, as far as we know, that's how the human brain has evolved, is to work, is to live in a community and to share memories amongst the community so that not everyone has to remember everything, Right. And there's a reason for it, too, because there's an advantage. Like, as we're talking, some people are better at other things, so they'll be better at remembering them. They'll be more inclined to. Why wouldn't you use that resource in a community and be like, I don't need to learn anything about movies if I don't want to, because I know my friend Dave's got me covered. Yeah. And then that memory compounds over time, too, right? I mean, that's, what, that's how we you know, continually develop newer and better technologies. One of the biggest steps humanity took was to encapsulate memory in the form of writing. I mean, that's, that was probably the first information age, if you really think about it. I mean, before mm -hmm. then, it was all oral tradition. And oral tradition is, is beautiful, um, but it has its limitations. The same thing with writing. Storing memories in writing is beautiful, but it has its limitations. I mean, the, you know, here's your uh, prehistoric, or er, your history reference, Dave, but... When the library in Alexander burnt down, so much knowledge from the world was just wiped off the face of the planet. It just disappeared, yeah. you know? 
And so writing has a weakness. But now we're at this next phase of information where we're storing our memories in a system, which is basically we're just storing on a computer. All these computers are networked together into something we call the internet. And what's crazy, what Daniel Wegner was getting at with one of his studies is that the internet, especially now, is so fast in terms of how we can get gather information from it that are there's indications that are first that our brains aren't necessarily able to dissociate our personal identity from the internet. We're going to break that down because that sounds really hoity-toity and made up make believe. And also, we there's you know scientists performing research where they scan brains of college students. So again, go check out our weird podcast about what a weird population is. But still, I think this is relevant data, basically indicating that the prefrontal cortex is actually shaped different in a younger generation that is more adapted to using web browsers. So I'm not going to get too much into the second part because I really don't have a good grasp on the science behind that at all in any way to communicate it. But the first part, what Daniel Wegner was talking about, he basically, he, he ran a test, obviously. That's how the scientific method works. And of course, there's a limitation here because it's, he's using self-reporting techniques. So, you know, let's say 100 college students come in for this, um, for this test, this lab exam. He basically breaks the group up 50-50. Group A and group B, before they take the test, both would answer a survey basically to try and generate a self-reported number sheet explaining how confident that individual was of their trivia knowledge because they knew they were going to be taking a trivia test, right? Again, self-reported data that's converted into numbers. It's a little weak as far as like pure science is concerned, but it's still interesting, right? And then group A took the, this trivia quiz basically, and they had access to a smartphone or a laptop or whatever. They basically had access to the internet. Group B did not. And on the exit of the test, both groups, again, were sampled. How confident were you about your answers? Okay. So you're thinking, Ryan, this is really silly. Of course, the Google people got more answers right. Of course they did. We know that. But group B was given false feedback. So if group A, the Google brains, if they got 90% of the questions right, group B was given the same feedback that they got 90% of the questions right. Because they're trying to control for, they're basically trying to isolate everything besides the confidence measure of these individuals. And they ran a number of tests. It's not 100 people that they tested. I'm just making that number up. And they reported that even though they both groups thought that they answered the questions at the same proficiency rate, they were just as smart as each other. Group A was by and large more confident that they were actually right. That is kind of creepy because what he goes on to say is, I mean, think about it this way. We talked about the transactive memory process, right? If I had to call you to get a memory from you, that might take five minutes. It might take two days if you don't pick up the phone, right? So it's very easy for me to understand that I am not you, right? Like Ryan is not Dave because it's mm -hmm. so obvious, right? But what if you tried to remember a fact, just on your own and not use the internet, even something you knew pretty well, it still might take you one second, two seconds, three seconds, maybe five. If you use Google, that could be a half second, maybe one second. 
if you had to scroll a little bit, it might be like three or four seconds. But the point is, it's probably going to be faster than you can recall your own memories. And that's where he draws the correlation of like, because there's an elevated confidence level in people who use the internet, and because the speed at which the brain can recall information from an external source, he's basically saying, I'm not sure that humans who use the internet, like deep down in like really in their brain, actually know that the internet is an external source of memory. That's really interesting and terrifying. So I, what you're basically saying is, you know, human beings have actually physiologically adapted to using a computer as an external hard drive for their own memory. Yeah, of course. I mean, why wouldn't we? It's, it seems pretty natural. I mean, I take photos just to remember things because it's so, there's storage is so cheap, right? I'll just take a photo of like literally anything. Just be like, oh, I remember that I was here that day. Why wouldn't I? It's so easy. Well, but I think a lot of us see the see the internet as a backup memory. So like, oh shoot, I forgot this one thing. I'll just go look it up. But I I mm, I don't think many people realize that they are purposefully not even remembering it in their primary memory because it's already stored in their external quote unquote memory or hard drive. Right. And I think an important distinction to bring up here is that you and I would feel that way, probably. Because um, we're not digital natives. Having said that, there is a giant population that is, that have were basically born with iPhones in their hand. Would they be able to make that same distinction? Yeah, but we're also digital immigrants, or maybe uh, digital uh, migrants. Sure, whatever. Yeah. Where you know we we started it in an analog world and we ended it in a digital world, and and I can see this you know I, I in my in my career there are numbers and processes and procedures and even deadlines you know like I work in finance so we have these like cyclical deadlines right you know, day the the second day after the first day of the month is you know this um, and you know you have to get journal entries in by 2 p.m. I remember those things from when I started. Um, I don't store any of that information anymore. We have the same process, same things every single month, and I look them up every single month. And and it always kind of frustrates me, you know, thinking, come on, Dave, why, why wouldn't you just store this in your memory like you used to? I used to have a really good knack for storing numbers in my memory. And I just don't anymore. And I, I kind of just attribute it to me getting older. But maybe it's, you know, it, it, there's no need to put it in my brain because it's just so easily accepted. I know exactly where it is. Yep. Why do I need to use my, you know, coveted brain space when I could just use, you know, unlimited digital space? Mm-hmm. And I think it's a valid point because I, I don't, I mean, unless the internet, unless the world falls apart, right? Unless we have a Bronze Age collapse part two, um, then obviously the internet will no longer be accessible, certainly not in its full breadth that we have now. Um, and then potentially all those memories would be gone. You know, the Library of Alexandria would burn down again in that case. Um, I don't, you know, I'm pretty hopeful. I don't think that's going to happen. Um, but it, it is possible to a degree. Yeah. Someday the sun's going to burn out. <laughs> well, that's true. <laughs> that is true. But, I mean, to your point, 
why wouldn't you use the tools that are available? I mean, humans have always been good at using the tools that are available to enhance their lives, to make their lives better. It's kind of almost like an innate part of humanity is to use a tool to extend oneself, right? I mean, like a shoe is an extension of your foot, right? Because it protects the sole of your foot. The internet is just an extension of our memory. Um, and also an interesting point, I, you know, this I was watching this lecture. There's a guy who uh, who's giving a lecture and he stopped midway. He was like, well, we need to cover something really quick. And he took off his shoe and he held up his laptop. And he's like, which one of these things is smarter? And this is a couple years old. So, you know, AI wasn't really working at all yet. And the answer is they're both the same. You know, a shoe is useless unless you put it on your foot. A computer is useless unless a, a human's interacting with it. Now that's that's going to change soon. But it's kind of important to remember that it's still just technology and it's still just human-derived technology. So while we can be afraid of it and be like, oh, doomsday, you know, the world's changing, the sky's falling, sure, but what else is new? I mean, tell me any time in history when that wasn't the truth, you know? Yeah. It does make you think, though, because, um, you know, a shoe is, is you know, is augmented or it's augmenting a human being. Um, but if, you know, you fast forward that to you're dressed in a giant mechanized, 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 mechanoid, whatever, um, suit of armor, and, you know, you can run 100 miles an hour and you can, it, it does all your, like it, it enhances your muscles in a way that's just, you know, not it's completely impossible. Or if we start augmenting our brains, um, mm-hmm. I'm not saying it's it's right or wrong, but it makes it it makes you immediately uneasy, or at least a little bit more uneasy than oh, that person's wearing shoes; they're cheating. Well, sure, because we're so used to shoes. But I guess that because the inevitable question, right, is as we outsource more of our memory to external sources via the internet. What does that do to us as human beings? Does that really help us enhance and and you know come to a higher human potential, or does it allow us to really shut down our brains because we don't need them anymore? <laughs> <laughs>